0: Hello, and welcome to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. My name is Oliver Carr, and I'm happy to say that this week I am welcoming back Zachary Skidmore, our senior news reporter, who will be helping me sift through the news and trends of the past week also on this episode.
1: My name is David Ari. I'm an investment director for the Australian Trade and Investment Commission based at the Australian Embassy in Berlin, and I've been in this role for six and a half years.
0: David is the Australians' man in Berlin when it comes to all things hydrogen. We discussed Australia's potential as a clean energy exporter and the importance of public-private cooperation across borders. Stay tuned for that. But we are once again starting with the news coverage. And
2: we welcome back Zachary Skidmore. Hi, Zach. Hi, thank you very much. What's been going on this week? So um, several news stories um, really caught our attention this week, with two major companies coming to the fore, that of CIP, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, and Total Energies. So starting with CIP, they announced a partnership for UK solar and battery energy storage, and this is a very large partnership with AmberSide Energy to deliver solar and battery energy storages across the UK. It will be run by um, CIP's flagship fund, which will provide capital to support the development of around two gigawatts of solar battery storage projects within the UK. Generally, this is um, kind of a trend with CIP. They've been very, very active in the deal space so far in 2023. They have indeed. I think we've
0: covered several of their deals on this podcast already, notably their acquisition of Statcraft's
2: Irish wind portfolio, uh, among other deals. Yes, indeed. Um, I think they've... N- They've inked four notable deals so far in 2023 that we've covered ourselves. So within the wind sector, CIP made an announcement alongside North Sea and Parkwind. And in doing so, the companies aimed to further strengthen their consortium, initially targeting the Ulster Nord tender. The first tender round in 2023 includes the Ulster Nord area, which will initially offer 1.5 gigawatts of capacity.
0: And of course, this feeds into the Norwegian government's uh, own objectives of building up a local regional supply base technology hub and their industry around floating offshore wind.
2: And so moving on to Total Energies, they made a significant divestment in a wind and solar portfolio in Spain. So they sold 50% of a 234 megawatt portfolio of renewable energy projects, which included 23 solar power plants and six wind farms. And that um, divestment was made to credit Argyle insurances.
0: Okay, that's a very interesting deal. Um, How much do we know about the projects included in that
2: portfolio? So 25 of the 29 plants are currently in operation, and they account for 180 megawatts of generation capacity. The remaining four are in late-stage construction, with commissioning expected in the first half of 2023. The entire portfolio was valued at 300 million. So we're seeing
0: big moves from both CIP and Total. Uh, are there any links and trends in both of these companies'
2: activity? Well, generally, they've both been very aggressive in the deal space. Total has been a bit more diversified in this approach. its approach. So it's inked five notable deals in the last month across several sectors, including hydrogen, CCS, solar, and wind. The most notable of these deals, I feel, was the creation of a joint venture with Air Liquide, to develop a network of hydrogen stations focusing on heavy duty vehicles on major European road corridors.
0: Yes, a very interesting development. And hydrogen infrastructure, of course, is something that certainly needs to be built up, certainly on the riskier side of the uh, investment portfolios. As uh, we know, it's uh, still some way off as a proven technology. But these steps do in fact need to happen eventually. And the first movers in a successful market will certainly be Rewarded. So it'll be interesting to follow how that goes. Yeah, definitely so. It
2: seems like Europe is really taking the lead on this one. So, moving on, we've seen a lot more activity in the PPA space this week. Yeah, PPAs have been a particular focus of several companies over the past week. There have been four high profile PPAs inked over the last week. So, those included StatCraft and Ineos, who signed two long term power agreements. EDF North America, which announced the signing of a 20-year virtual power purchase agreement with Fermo Fisher Scientific. ENBW, who expanded the offtaker pool of its 900-megawatt hydric offshore wind farm in the North Sea for a PPA with Enovik. That actually expanded upon an initial PPA, adding a further 50 megawatts to the already 100-megawatt agreement. And finally, Statcraft who inked a 10-year solar power purchase agreement in Italy with Infinity Global. Looking more broadly at this, these deals are kind of indicative of a broader growth of PPAs throughout the market, especially within the European region. In 2020, around a quarter of Europe's 33.4 gigawatt of renewable installations had signed a PPA. And this number is just increasing rapidly as we move into 2023, as large corporations have set pretty significant emission reduction targets begin to ramp up their procurement of long-term renewable energy contracts. Well, just another insight on the growth of PPAs, especially within Europe, has been the increase of PPA prices as a whole. In Q4 of 2022, solar power purchase agreement prices jumped 30%, with demand for renewable energy PPAs continuing to exceed supply. The demand and threat of the USA's Inflation Reduction Act has driven the EU to seek a streamlined process of regulatory approval, to allow for a renewable energy products to be approved and constructed at a faster and cheaper rate. I'm very glad you brought up the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, because this has really been
0: a big mover of the coverage uh, of the whole renewable sector globally over the last uh, few months. And, in fact, you mentioned earlier that Europe is indeed taking the lead on hydrogen developments. Well, if the uh, market keeps going the way it is, we could see a lot more of that progress being usurped by the american market
2: which is offering a substantial premium on hydrogen production right now oh definitely um the eu has actually recently just last week actually announced a draft plan to try and combat the impacts of the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act. So this plan has been developed due to fears within the bloc that the USA will take advantage of their generous subsidy scheme to draw renewable companies into the U.S. market rather than staying within the European market. So the reforms that the EU have proposed aim to expand the so-called bloc exemption regime, allowing more state support to be granted without explicit commission approval. This in turn would enable greater aid for more mature technologies and renewable energies going beyond those already defined by the EU's current renewable energy laws to include green hydrogen and biofuels. Additionally, the draft proposal would aim to set up a European sovereignty fund by the middle of the year to allow all 27 governments to fund state aid. As a result of this, governments will be able to subsidise hydrogen, carbon capture Zero emission vehicles and energy efficiency measures, cutting through all the red tape that developers have said makes it much harder to scale up their businesses.
0: While the EU and the US are seemingly racing against one another to uh, increase the support for renewable and clean technology energy transition projects, uh, it does feel sometimes like the UK is being a little bit left in the dust. Not necessarily helped this week with the announcement that Baze, the The department at the centre of the UK's energy industry, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, is being abolished. More precisely, it is being divided. What was the business brief within that department will be moving and merging with the Department of International Trade, which will be headed up by Kemi Badenoch's new business and trade ministry, whereas the energy brief will be moved to an energy security and net zero department headed up by Grant Shapps. And uh, this is not to be confused with the Energy and Climate Change
2: Department, which was abolished by Theresa May in 2017. Completely different thing. So the um, the new Department for Energy Security and Net Zero is quite a timely creation, because it's going to focus on ensuring the security of energy supply during this winter, next winter, and in the longer term. And indeed, as the government continues to remind us, due to the pressures of the war in Ukraine and rising Energy prices across the board, the importance of maintaining energy security has become paramount throughout all of our lives.
0: Certainly, and it fits into the government's wider strategy of um, aiming to become a net energy exporter by the year 2040, an aim which uh, will no doubt be supported by the included net zero
2: brief. Indeed.
0: However, the reason perhaps I sounded a little pessimistic at the beginning there is the only thing that so far this department uh, splitting has achieved is delaying the uh, announcements but we were expecting this week on the energy bill that is currently working its way through the ministry and parliament. Also in this shakeup, the science innovation and technology brief has been moved into its own dedicated department separate from business energy and trade. Rishi Sunak will certainly be hoping that this new shake-up helps to accelerate the UK's transition towards net zero as well as bolstering the energy security. We seem to have had a continuous run of delays on energy policy we've had a knockback of the hydrogen business model and now this week again more delays in the energy bill so hopefully this uh shake-up will get things back on track one could hope so thank you zach my pleasure oliver and now for my interview with david erie investment director at Ostrade. David, thank you so much for speaking to us today and uh, would you mind please starting off by explaining what is the Australian Trade Investment Commission and what is it that you are trying to achieve as an organisation?
1: So the Australian Trade Investment Commission is part of the Australian Federal Government and we're mandated with accelerating the growth of Australian exporters and attracting foreign direct investment into Australia around a range of priority sectors. So what we actually do is we facilitate business-to-business engagement. We also help government-to-business and business-to-government engagement. And we also take record of our engagement that we have uh, to feed back into policy based on the commercial insights we gain. So specifically in, in the investment area, we work with companies across the world to connect them to early stage opportunities in Australia and to facilitate then their partnerships and ongoing development with the ambition and the goal to have them invest productively in the Australian economy. So the other part of the work that we do, which is my trade colleagues across Europe and across the world, they work with Australian exporters to help sell innovative projects and services into markets, in our case, the European market.
0: Well, that leads on, I think, very well to my next question, which is, well, why is Austrade in that case interested in hydrogen?
1: So hydrogen is a really interesting area because it is um, a policy space as well as an early commercial space. Um, And so that's exactly where we think um, the Australian Trade Investment Commission can add benefit by helping facilitate relationships in this space. Um, It's also a government priority of the current Australian government. And so we're helping um, accelerate the clean energy transition by um, facilitating engagement in the space of hydrogen.
0: Now, I understand there's been a lot of activity in the hydrogen space recently. Um, uh, you hosted, if I'm right, an uh, Australian delegation in your uh, German offices in the past few weeks. Uh, I wondered if you could tell me anything about what kind of conversations are happening there, anything uh, that came out of these uh, interactions?
1: Sure, of course. So as part of the big ambition of the current government, as outlined by the Prime Minister, to make Australia a renewable energy superpower, we were really happy to host the Australian Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, in Europe. Um, and he met with his portfolio counterparts on climate, ener- climate change, energy and research. And he also met with German industry players who are interested in either becoming offtakers of Australian hydrogen in the future or investing into the development of the Australian hydrogen industry um there was some really interesting announcement that we also had as part of this visit so the german and australian government are jointly funding some pilot projects in the hydrogen space, this is a result of a two-year feasibility study that happened between Australia and Germany, um, coined High Supply, that looked at the feasibility of a hydrogen supply chain between the two countries. And it came up with the result that it isn't just feasible, but it's highly desirable and commercially sensible to have such a supply chain. And as I said, out of that developed this pilot funding scheme, which was called Highgate, between um, the German government and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency in Australia, who each put in 50 million respectively, so $50 million from the Australians and 50 million euros from the Germans. And um, Minister Bowen and his counterpart Bettina Stark-Watzinger in Germany announced the 4 um EMA projects that came out of this joint funding round when he was here last week.
0: Okay, that's really interesting, and it ties up quite well with um, some internal research that we've done at Inspiratio. Uh, where we've looked at different markets, including Australia and Germany. And we've seen that kind of uh, very much ties up what you said. Germany is a market which is primed to import large amounts of clean, renewable hydrogen. And Australia is, in our opinion, uh, one of the most promising export markets. So that's quite a natural pairing. Uh, Perhaps you could talk us through a little bit. Why is it, in your view, that Australia is so well placed to uh, be an exporter of green hydrogen?
1: Sure. So I think broadly, we we kind of have three reasons or three parts of the argument for why we think Australia is so well placed as a future exporter of hydrogen and green hydrogen. And the first and most obvious one is that it's got an abundance of natural resources that are well placed to deliver renewable energy that is needed to create renewable hydrogen or green hydrogen. And that's obviously a combination of sun and wind with the right timings in Australia as well. So there's a couple of countries around the world that have that kind of resource. Australia really is one of the most leading. So what adds to that, and that's the second part of the argument, is that Australia is a is a very experienced exporter of energy, right? So we have like a hundred years history of exporting coal and then more recently LNG. And I think that especially the experience that we've had on building up a global market around LNG in Australia becoming one of the leading exporters of this, we can apply this to a future green hydrogen economy and help build that up and become a big exporter of that energy carrier in future. And the third part, which is also quite interesting, is that while Australia has this abundance of natural resources, it is it has a comparatively small domestic market for molecular-based energy needs. So while it obviously has its own electricity grid, and there's also government policy legislated around you know, working that towards a, a zero-carbon economy, but in terms of molecular energy, which hydrogen is, there's a comparatively small demand in Australia, so we can produce more than we need and actually produce multiples of what our domestic market might need for export that can then help other economies that will have to import molecular energy um, on their energy transition.
0: We've talked a little bit there about the, uh, the perhaps the synergies and the partnerships that can be built in the uh, public space between governments and regulators, uh, but I'm also interested in the uh, private, the investment side of uh, the hydrogen market. It's a very new market, and building up these value chains from the ground up really does require that private backing as well as governments. So uh, I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about the kind of partnerships that maybe already exist between Australia and other European partners, and uh, how those need to be developed going forward.
1: Sure, of course, happy to. And yes, you're absolutely right. So the, the biggest part of the buildup of this industry will have to come from the private sector, right? Government's role can't be to create an entire industry. Our role is to facilitate The kickstarting of an industry creating itself out of um, investment from the private sector. Um, There's a number of partnerships, especially in this space. As you will know, hydrogen is a very hot space. So there's a lot going on. Um, I don't know about all of them, um, but I can showcase a few. Um, So there are both um, partnerships between businesses, so business to business, there's partnerships between different governments. Germany, Australia is a good example for that. There's also now pilot projects where governments are working with businesses to um, create. pilot projects and feasibility studies. Um, A good example, as as I already mentioned, is maybe the Australian-Germany Energy Partnership, which has actually been ongoing in some shape or another since 2017. Um, But now has at the forefront energy and, as was announced by Minister Bowen during his visit, will actually also in future focus on climate as a partnership between our two countries. That isn't by far the only relationship that Australia has with developed economies. So we have partnerships or MOUs with a number of other countries. Actually, one was signed as well with Netherlands during Minister Bowen's visit last week but for example, also Korea or Japan. And Germany likewise has a strategy for its energy partnerships. I think there's like 22 in total with most of the developed economies. So these are helpful and they can create frameworks, but at the end it is for businesses to find opportunities to work together, to engage, to invest and to sign deals for offtake to get this industry really off the ground. What makes hydrogen a bit interesting is that we're kind of developing a commercial market and a policy space in parallel. And so we see Austrade or the Australian Trade Investment Commission's role really as ensuring that it isn't just parallel, but it happens in lockstep. So that we make sure that the decisions that are taken in the policy space are good or beneficial to developing a commercial market. And that we give feedback of those commercial players to the development of this policy space as well.
0: So we've talked about some of those um, partnerships between um Governments and in the private sector, but one of the sticking points of any uh, new and emerging uh, technology and product is often around uh, agreeing on norms for uh, standards. And particularly with hydrogen, what's interesting is the profile of the emissions of the process which went to produce the hydrogen. Uh, you have Scope two and Scope three uh, emissions also in certain markets, but now need to be taken into consideration. Uh, I wonder how far. Uh, you think that the topic of coming up with agreed standards between different markets and between different regulators has come?
1: Well, it's quite a hot topic in an area where there is obviously at this early stage of developing an industry, a few um, different approaches still taking by different countries, by different entities, by different organisations. Australia is working on its guarantee of origin scheme, which is quite closely um, consulted with IHPE, um international programme around... Um, Hydrogen in the economy, so to make sure that those standards that Australia is developing around its guarantee origin scheme will fit with international understandings. Germany is involved in this space as well. So it's part of the European Union's um, directive on renewable energy that's coming out, which is more focused on colours or colour schemes of hydrogen as opposed to the emissions content or the carbon intensity. Um, but it's also active in this international group I just mentioned where Australia is also playing a role. So there's still different developments happening in this space. Frankly, if you talk to commercial players, they say we can deliver to all of these, but what makes most sense for us is to look at the carbon intensity of any kind of energy carrier produced because that's what we will have to report in our sustainability reporting anyway. And based on that, we can also devise quite easily what the price point for any kind of carbon-intensive hydrogen derivative might be, right? So if it's completely green or whatever the definition is, then it'll have a higher price tag than if it's you know uh, produced at a time where there's a lot of wind anyway and you didn't have to get any alternative renewable energy source into the production.
0: In the UK market, we're quite used to hearing um, about uh, the UK government's um, hydrogen business model scheme, which they're pushing forward. Uh, I know Germany has um, a similar, more direct grant funding mechanism. Uh, all these different schemes are in place to encourage investors to you know, make that jump towards hydrogen. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you could give us a little bit of the insight into how that's, how those conversations are going in Australia, how much appetite there is there in the Australian market among private investors to get interested in hydrogen mm-hmm.
1: projects. So, as I said in the beginning, I've been working in foreign direct investment for for over a decade now, the last uh, six and a half years for the Australian government. And frankly, this is the only industry or the only development of an industry ever where we've had commercial players coming to us saying, listen, we're really interested in what is happening in another market, in our case, Australia. Um, How can we get involved? You know, how can we become part of those discussions? So it's a very, very active space. It's very um, dynamic and companies are actively on both sides, so for investment or for offtake, are keen to understand what are the developments happening in Australia. Um, And you can see the amount of appetite that there is in engaging with Australia from the presence that we had at the last World Hydrogen Summit in Rotterdam in 2022, where we had a big stand. We're actually going to be replicating this this year in May, where we're bringing a most likely even larger delegation over from Australia to the World Hydrogen Summit to engage with interested parties in Europe. So it's broad the interest and it's deep, um, and it's happening both at the policy level and at the business-to-business level, where there's already partnerships forming. A few good examples of that are the, you know, the partnerships, the consortia that have come out of the gate funding that was announced last week.
0: So hydrogen is one of the newer technologies that uh, gets talked about in the investment uh, portfolio of many of the uh, big investors that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I keep hearing is a question. Uh, To me, and I hope that you may hope that maybe you can give me some insight on this is when will hydrogen? be a safe investment? In other words, why? when will the risks associated with the technology fall away? And in other words, how do we de-risk hydrogen in the mind of investors?
1: I mean, it's a very broad question, right? Because hydrogen in itself is a really broad space. And if you look at different subsets of hydrogen, then you get very different answers to technology as well as to investment de-risking. I mean, if you think about the concept of an electrolyzer, that technology has been around for a, a century, right, um, in one shape or another. Um, If you think about transporting energy carriers across the globe, then that's been done for three decades. So I think it's really hard to kind of answer that question generally across hydrogen because it encompasses so many different subject areas and so many different topics. Broadly, I mean, that's exactly the role we see for us as the Australian Trade Investment Commission is enabling conversations between businesses and between business and government to understand what are the risks, what are the areas that are known, that are unknown, where can we make... um, concrete safe commercial decisions and where is there more research needed where do we have to bring in research partners to look at questions and then maybe find commercially sound solutions that will then enable a de-risking of particular investments or steps of the value chain for creating a global hydrogen economy so that's where we hope to play a role okay so
0: wrapping up we've uh, covered quite a lot of ground there in uh, a short amount of time so um maybe we can uh end off by just I, I, I would like to get a view into your opinions. but what what do you think is the next big
1: thing, big challenge that must be overcome to build that hydrogen economy? I'll start with a slightly different answer and I say, I think the current challenge that we need to get through first is that we have hydrogen as this, you know, this cover term and there's a huge hype around it. And I think one of the jobs that we also see for us as the Australian Trade Investment Commission is kind of cutting through the noise and showcasing where there's the concrete opportunity. So just maybe to follow on from my last question to say that, for example, we're developing a very concrete portfolio of um, projects that we think are very reliable and that we put in front of our investors. So I guess getting out of, you know, this big, big area of there's so much going on down to where are the concrete reliable opportunities that investment or discussions can happen on now. That's what we need to get to now. And then to answer your question, the next big challenge in the global hydrogen economy will be all about scale. I think it'll be getting beyond feasibility studies, using these pilot projects that we, for example, have between Germany and Australia, but other in other spaces to kind of really scale up every single aspect of the future hydrogen economy. That can be, you know, how much additional renewable energy will we actually need to create enough to run our electrolyzers? How much capacity of electrolyzers do we actually need to create all of the hydrogen that is forecasted that we will need. And then how are the supply chains globally going to be able to to can transport all of this volume to the places where it will be consumed? And in what form of derivative will it arrive where and what makes sense? But it's all about kind of moving from lab scale, from theoretical, from small feasibility studies into the scale that we will need. Because if you look at the projections for 2030 and going onwards, it's just incredibly large and um, we're not there yet. What I always find quite interesting um, around this discussion of hydrogen is that everyone's approaching it kind of like former energy areas, whereas we're now creating an energy carrier that doesn't have a natural scarcity, right? So I think often kind of people are anxious about, oh, God, someone's going to take my energy carrier off me, or there's not going to be enough, or we're not, you know, if we're not the first mover, we're going to miss out. But what I find really fascinating about hydrogen is that there actually is no scarcity of supply because we can create as well at some point we'll run out of space to put solar panels and wind turbines but we're not kind of working off of a finite number or quantity of hydrogen right it's it's up to us to create as much as we need so i think it, it's kind of would be really good for for the industry as a whole to get out of this idea that there's a, like a defined cake and everyone's scared about getting the right piece uh, size of piece or the biggest piece but it's really up up to us to make the cake as big as we can
0: Thanks again to David for his time and his great insights into the hydrogen industry. Thank you very much for listening to the Joint Venture Podcast once again. We have enjoyed your feedback from the last few episodes. It's podcasts at Inspiratia if you want to get in touch. And thank you once again to our guests. If you've been enjoying the Joint Venture Podcast, please share us and leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. That's all from us this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. Goodbye.
2: Bye.